Good day, everyone, and welcome back to Denton's Global Pod Chat. In this series, we'll be discussing the distressed commercial real estate market, including the current landscape in the U.S. of workouts, enforcement, and bankruptcy. This is part one of a two-part session. In our first part, we focus on workouts, and the second part will focus on enforcement, foreclosure, and bankruptcy. Stay tuned as the Denton's Global Pod Chat dives into other regions and hot topics. My name is Samantha Rubin, and I'm a bankruptcy associate at Denton's in our Chicago office. Since I've started here, I've had the pleasure of working with both Robert Richards and Chris Milankiewicz, who will also be speaking on this podcast today. Robert Richards is chair of Denton's Global Restructuring, Insolvency, and Bankruptcy Practice Group and practices in the areas of bankruptcy and insolvency-related transactions and litigation. His practice includes Chapter 11 representations, distressed asset acquisitions, distressed loan purchases and foreclosure sales, and out-of-court transactions and transaction structuring. Bob is recommended by Chambers USA, where he is praised as a superb attorney with great legal skills and a creative mind, someone who gets things done, done and overcomes hurdles. He's also recommended in Best Lawyers Illinois. BTI Consulting Group surveyed in-house counsel and named Bob as a BTI client service all-star in 2015 in recognition of his superior client service. Chris Milankiewicz is a partner in Denton's real estate practice group in New York. Chris has over 20 years of experience in commercial real estate law, focusing on lender and borrower side finance, including commercial backed mortgage securities and balance sheet loans, mezzanine loans, and preferred equity. His practice covers diverse real property asset classes located around the globe, and he has extensive experience with hotel and leisure properties. He also represents real estate investors in secondary market transactions through whole loan sales, purchases, syndications, participations, and securitizations. In addition, Chris strategizes and executes workouts and exercises of remedies with respect to distressed real estate loans and loan interests. He also provides advice on real estate matters in litigation and bankruptcy cases, where we've had the opportunity to work together. So today we're going to focus on hotels and commercial office. Our current landscape is shaped by previous government funding that companies received during the pandemic and current relaxed credit standards. There's a few key sources of distress that we're seeing now in the market. Debt is more expensive given the rising interest rates, which also make it more difficult to refinance. We're also seeing that the market is facing a wall of maturities. According to Bloomberg News, a $1.5 trillion wall of debt is looming for commercial properties. Um, We're also seeing various covenant defaults in the market. And in terms of commercial office, there's lower vacancy rates, lower rents, and companies are just taking up less space in in this area, which leads to cash flow issues, especially for landlords. It's also more costly to repurpose space given the rising cost of materials to do that. And we're seeing diminishing property appraisal values and also fluctuating values. Today, we're gonna discuss two main sections, workouts and enforcement and bankruptcy. And we recognize that parties often wear many different hats. So we'll discuss those different perspectives throughout. We're gonna walk through a fact scenario where Chris and Bob are going to give us different perspectives from lenders and borrowers and other constituents in these types of deals. 
So let's say you have a 1% fixed rate loan maturing in February 2024 for a half empty office building with a remaining major tenant who has an early termination option in April 2024. Reconfiguring the space for a residential or a shared office would be a major expense. It also has a $50 million senior mortgage loan and a $10 million mezzanine loan. Chris, how do you start approaching the situation from the lender's perspective? Well, Sandy, um, I think, you know, we are lawyers, not journalists, but what I find um, in these types of workout situations or pre-workout situations is that facts gathering um, in the manner of a journalist is probably the most important thing that a lender or frankly a borrower or, or any other party who's involved can do. Um, you know, there's the, the basic questions that they teach you in journalism school, which they should also frankly teach you in law school, who, what, when, why, where, and how. And those questions all apply to the kinds of situations um, that we face every day with loans that are in default or going into default or potentially going to go into default. Um, and just like journalists, um, the, the most important thing we can do to kind of set ourselves up for success is to begin asking those questions and gathering all the information that we need before our clients start making any decisions or certainly taking any actions. So thinking through those questions in turn, I start with who. Um, when I'm looking at a situation like the one that you described, the first thing I need to know is who is involved. Obviously, I, hopefully I know who my borrower is. Um, I mean, you'd be surprised. Sometimes, it, sometimes you don't even know um, who you are going to be dealing with. But on a more legal end of things, the questions, the, the who questions are really, who is going to be involved in making decisions about this loan and this property? On my lender side, I need to know who else is in the cockpit with me. Do I have a co-pilot? Do I have a, a co-lender, for example, um, who may have rights under the co-lender agreement to approve decisions that I make? Do I have, as in the situation that you described, a mezzanine lender, which is to say somebody who has a junior position who may have rights to approve modifications of my loan or who may be seeking to make modifications to their loan that could impact me that I want to make sure that I exercise my rights to approve over. Um, is my loan in a securitization? If it is, then a servicer may be involved or a special servicer. They may have rights to take control of situations like this or rights to uh, at least approve you know, uh, things that I want to do if, if I'm a note holder. Um, if I am, even if I'm my own lender and I don't share the, the loan with anybody, um, I still need to understand vis-a-vis -vis my borrower, um, like I said, who, who am I talking to at the borrower? Is it a joint venture? Is there one partner who's authorized to negotiate versus somebody who's not? Um, you know, am I going to spend months striking a deal with one side of the borrower structure only to discover that there was a preferred equity member who had rights to approve it and who doesn't want to go along? So all of those questions, I, I literally need to sort of diagram out who's going to be involved in these negotiations and what rights do they have um, to approve even more importantly, um, what money do they have to put into the deal? Because approval rights and 
actually being able to stand behind decisions that are made with with new equity or carrying costs, money that's going to be required to move things along, potentially pay down my loan. That's another who question I need to answer. Who's got basically who's got money and who can help grease the wheels to get the the situation resolved in the in the um, situation that you described where you've got an office building with a early termination option, um, as you noted, reconfiguring would be a major expense. Maybe that's maybe that's something that we want to work with the borrower to do. Maybe we don't. It's going to depend on whether we think there's somebody out there who's got pockets deep enough to to do that. And perhaps that's not the current borrower, which may be why they're in trouble. Perhaps that's the mezzanine lender who, you know, although their loan may be underwater, may actually be interested in putting more money into the deal as a way essentially essentially turning their loan into what we call a loan to own where they they would put some more money in end up foreclosing and get a valuable property for you know pennies on the dollar so these are all who questions that you need to to think about and answer and and know who you're going to be talking to um, as a prelude to beginning any of those discussions um, the next question is what what are, in this case, the potential defaults, or you know, if you're in a, a, a workout where a loan has already defaulted, what defaults have occurred? What are the problems? It sounds like an obvious question, but it, it isn't always. You know, a, a failure to pay or a looming failure to pay may be one thing, but if you can dig behind why that failure happened and understand is the default because of disputes within the joint venture so that you've got a, a JV partner who's supposed to fund but isn't? Is the default because of a um, guarantor who wants to get off the hook and isn't interested in putting any more money into the deal? Um, are the defaults because something's going wrong at the property level and cash is not getting upstreamed? You know, perhaps there's some misappropriation happening, you know, perhaps. Uh, financial reporting isn't occurring when it's supposed to, and there may be a reason for that because somebody is essentially trying to hide something. Um, so again, understanding the, the facts of what is happening or what may be about to happen and, and, and why is, is critical to being able to sketch out a strategy to, to deal with it. Um, monetary defaults are different than non-monetary defaults. There are different cure periods, it's a lot easier to cure a monetary default. Non-monetary defaults, if you're a lender, you may not um, be able to, you, you know, you, you can't get into a property and start taking care of on-the-ground problems at the property without either putting in a receiver or foreclosing. Both of those are time-consuming and costly um, endeavors. So again, you need to understand, you know, is this, is this simply something that can be cured with additional funds, or is this something that's going to require a much more intimate interaction with the property that could involve getting your hands dirty as a lender, which then could involve lender liability. So these are all questions that you need to begin to think through before you can, before you can decide on a plan of action. You've got to know what it is that you are acting about. Um, the next question would be when timing is critical in these situations. Um, understanding, you know, what is what is the deadline for getting things solved in in the in the scenario that you gave? You've got a major tenant who's got an early termination approaching in a few months. Um, so obviously, you know, that's that's a deadline. 
that's important to keep in, in mind. And if you think that the workout or if you think that your, your strategy may not be able to get done in just a few months, maybe you need to start talking to the tenant now to see if you can get a bead on whether they are planning to negotiate or planning to terminate. Um, in a situation where you've already got a default, um, like I said, figuring out what those defaults actually were is important and figuring out when they occurred is important. Uh, you know, one of a lender's biggest tools in a workout or enforcement scenario is default rate interest. Um, it's a major hammer because it, default rate interest builds up quickly. Um, it gives you as a lender a big claim in bankruptcy. It gives you a big hammer against the borrower, especially if you've got a guarantor who might be on the hook for it. Um, so you like to begin to be able to charge default rate interest as early as you can. So determining when these defaults actually happened um, is important. Obviously, a payment default, it's easy to determine. It was the date the payment was not made. But other non-monetary defaults are a little, sometimes they're fuzzier. Um, you know, if the borrower covenanted to um, provide notice of a material adverse event at the property, you know, there may be a difference of opinion about when that material adverse event occurred. And, you know, the, the sort of earlier you can relate back your defaults, the longer runway of default rate interest you can charge and the, the bigger hammer that gives you. So again, when is an important question um, to understand both sort of forward looking as you look at deadlines that you've got to meet and backward looking as you try to figure out sort of when your defaults first began happening. Um, another timing aspect is, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you've got sort of people sitting up in the cockpit with you who've got to be, uh, whose interests have got to be um, taken into account, there may be deadlines associated with that. Under a co-lender agreement or an intercreditor agreement, your co-lender or your subordinate lender may have notice and cure periods um, that have to be, notices that have to be given and cure periods that have to run before you can begin to take action on your loan. Um, so it's, it's important to understand what those deadlines are to make sure that you don't miss them, that you don't forget to send those notices because that could complicate your efforts to enforce or to modify a loan down the line if suddenly somebody is putting up their hand and saying, well, I was never given you know, my, my legally entitled opportunity or my contractually entitled opportunity to cure or to buy, the, buy your loan or um, exercise any rights. So just understanding, having a timeline of what all those deadlines are and, and who has rights that are associated with those deadlines, a very important part of fact gathering in advance of any kind of uh, enforcement or workout. Um, the next question is why, and this is a, almost a philosophical question for the lender, why are you going to do what you are going to do? Are you interested in owning this property? If so, you may direct your actions towards enforcement. Is the last thing you want to own this property? Maybe it's a you know environmentally compromised property or just has, you know, massive carry deficits that you would have to put huge amounts of your own money into. So the last thing you want to do is buy it or take it over in a foreclosure. Um, are you just trying to get this loan off your books? If so, maybe instead of enforcing or working it out, you might want to just take it to the defaulted loan market and see if you can find somebody to buy it and take it off your hands and then let them deal with it. So 
really thinking through what you're trying to accomplish, why you're going to do what you're going to do is, is important because there's a lot of different paths that are available and different actions that need to be taken early on to enable you to successfully exit through a number of those different exit doors. Um, next question is where? Um, I know this sounds sort of silly, but literally understanding where your loan file is is important. Um, you know, to enforce a mortgage, often you need, depending on the jurisdiction, the original, literally like the actual piece of paper signed in ink by the borrower. You need that original promissory note in order to enforce. If you have a mezzanine loan, you need the original LLC certificate that was the collateral for the loan. It's like a stock certificate. You need that original document um, to potentially. Knowing where those files are and retrieving them from the depths of a custodian um, can take a long time and can hold things up. So you need to understand the where of your file. And more broadly, you need to understand where is all the information that you gathered at origination, especially if you didn't originate the loan and you bought it from somebody, you know, there, there may be all kinds of, um, you know, tax information, property information, the management agreement, just all sorts of things, amendments that have been made, utilities, contracts, just everything that is associated with a, with a property. If you don't have all that information someplace handy, you're, you're taking over the property or your threat to take over the property becomes um, less, less easy and less believable because you are not in a position really to step in and start running it because you don't have all the information that you need. So understanding where all that information is, is critical. Um, and then the last question is how, how are you going to, how are you going to do what you're going to do? If you're going to do a workout, how are you going to structure those discussions? Are you going to enter into a forbearance agreement, a pre-negotiation agreement, um, which we'll talk about in a little while? And if you're not, if you're going to enforce, how are you going to enforce? Are you going to go down the road of a real estate foreclosure, a UCC foreclosure, an action against the guarantor, all of which we'll talk about a little bit later? But again, sort of knowing what path you want to set out down and what's at the end of that path before you take a step is the most critical thing that you can do as a lender. And frankly, again, as a borrower, the same considerations all apply sort of from a, a mirror image. So all these questions are important no matter what side of the table you sit on, um, but you really, you shouldn't get up from the table and start taking any actions until you've asked and answered all of them for yourself. Thanks, Chris, for your insight into the lender's perspective. There's certainly a lot to consider in these situations. And I think it's a great analogy to use that lawyers and even their clients should act like journalists, especially when they first dig into a matter and are making really big decisions on how to proceed with a distress situation. So, Bob, how do you start approaching this situation from the borrower, sponsor, and guarantor's perspective? Thanks. Much like Chris discussed, it's important to know uh, your borrower side. Uh, is this a family that this is the only building they own? Is this a large REIT with hundreds of properties? Uh, their approach may be very different depending on who they are and what their motivations are. Uh, it always starts generally on, the, on that borrower side with what's my upside on the property and what's my downside on the property. Uh, some view it purely commercially, 
Others have a strong emotional attachment and want to keep the property, if at all possible, uh, or fear a loss of face in the marketplace. Borrowers these days typically tend to be uh, single-purpose entities, uh, so the real party calling the shot is the sponsor. Uh, and the sponsor may be you know, a single owner, it could be a joint venture, it could be a REIT, uh, and that will really impact how it approaches it um, and whether it has other properties and other relationships with the lenders uh, may play a role here as well. On guarantees, uh, the nature of the guarantee really matters. Uh, rarely you'll see a full recourse guarantee with the guarantors on the dollar on the hook for all of the loan. Uh, typically, what you see more is something like a limited dollar guarantee or a specific event guarantee. For instance, the project's under construction, and I. Um, guarantee that it, it'll be completed, but I otherwise don't guarantee the loan. And then, especially in securitizations, uh, something else you often see is what's called a bad boy guarantee, which is generally the loan is non-recourse, but if I do certain bad things like file it into bankruptcy or in bad faith try to oppose a lender's exercise of remedies, then it may be uh, uh, liable to me as we state that thing so for guarantors sometimes it's full recourse but that's relatively rare uh, often you see something that's uh, either limited dollars or event driven like that uh, construction ongoing will be completed but otherwise there's no recourse for the loan and then sometimes, especially in securitizations, you'll see what's called a bad boy guarantee, where you only guarantee uh, in the event of certain events, like I file the project into bankruptcy, or I bad faith uh, oppose a foreclosure by the lender, but otherwise I can walk away uh, from the project. Other things that I would look at is what is the burn rate uh, of the project, the more money I have to fund, the more I'm going to think about, do I want to walk away from this? Um, in our scenario, let's say that I think the major tenant is going to exercise its option and not uh, keep its space. Uh, you know, How much is going to be CapEx to repurpose the building or repurpose the space? And what's my return if I spend the money on that kind of CapEx expense? Sometimes there's accrued management fees or insider loans. Those tend to be subordinated, but you know it's something I would consider whether I can get any money back on those. We do have multiple relationships with the lender. Uh, are there going to be any cross defaults that I need to consider? Although again, those are relatively rare. Thanks, Bob. Turning it back over to Chris, let's say your hypothetical client wants to enter into a forbearance agreement or a loan amendment. What are the, some of the key points that the lender will want in those agreements? Well, you know, there was an adage in the old days of the nuclear disarmament negotiations, trust but verify. Uh, and that certainly applies to a loan um, forbearance or workout. Um, I think as a lender, you know, you can you can assume that your borrower is acting in good faith and that when they say, 
that they're going to do X or Y, they really mean that they that they are going to do it, or I should say they they mean that they want to do it. Whether they actually do it becomes a different question, and that's where the the verification comes in, and in particular the the guardrails that we like to put in to, to kind of make sure that the borrower stays on the path that they've promised to to, to go down with you. Um, so you know, first, um, if you are thinking about entering into a forbearance, which is basically an agreement not to exercise your rights to foreclose um, on a property um, while you and the borrower figure out what to do with this loan that's in default. Um, you want to enter into a pre-negotiation agreement, which is an agreement between the two of you to, to both acknowledge that anything that you discuss in your negotiations is not going to be binding until you actually sign a complete definitive legal document, i.e. an amendment of the loan. Um, you don't want to be in a situation where because you had sort of spitballed the idea of extending the loan for two years, later the borrower is running into court and saying that you promised to extend the loan for two years. Um, if the borrower just paid you, you know, $50,000 and that was, that was like one item that you'd mentioned in the course of discussions, but you'd never actually agreed to that pre-negotiation agreement. Just make sure that everyone's on the same page, that until everyone is literally on the same page that they've signed in a definitive agreement, nothing's going to be binding. So once you've got that in place, um, then you can move on to negotiate the actual substance of your, your workout or your amendment. Um, there, again, you want, to, you want to make sure that the borrower is going to follow through with what they say they're going to do. A good way to do that is to actually make them put some money where their mouth is. You know, obviously, you're in this situation because the borrower doesn't have sufficient funds to fully comply with their obligations, but presumably they've got something. Presumably they've got access to something or they can, they can put a little fresh equity in sell something, come up with a, with some dollars to show that they mean to be good for for the for the loan um, once once they get back on their feet or once the property starts cash flowing again or once they are able to find a buyer for the property. So getting them to put up a little bit of money, even if it's even if it's not very much, but at least agree to cover your legal fees, put up a little bit of cash collateral maybe pay down the loan a little bit or you know, fund a carry cost reserve for a couple of months. Whatever it is, just getting them to actually put up some dollars is a way to verify that they're not just trying to kind of push things along and hope that, you know, hope that somehow um, you know, the, the tooth fairy leaves the money under their pillow, um, but actually make sure that they've, they've, got something, they've got something invested, a little bit extra skin into the game now um, so that you know that they really do mean to you know continue to try to work with you and comply with the obligations that they've agreed to in this amendment um, another way to build in sort of verification guardrails is to have really clear deadlines um, you know there's there's a there's a saying extend and pretend um, borrowers who don't know whether they're going to be able to um, pay a loan or make interest payments, love to just kick the can and extend the maturity date and just hope that, you know, as each month comes, comes uh, they can scrape together the interest payment. Um, what, what you want to have are clear deadlines for when things have to happen so that you're not just kind of 
you know, bobbing along with them for an indefinite period of time as they, as I said, sort of scrape together, you know, every month scrape together enough to keep, you know, keep running on fumes. You really want to have clear deadlines so that you know sooner rather than later that this is not actually going to work out. That despite the borrower's best intentions, you know, you, you, you really believe they meant, they meant to do what they said, but despite that, they didn't meet the deadline and they've missed two deadlines and now it's becoming really clear that despite all the lip service they've been saying they've been paying um they don't actually have any real money to pay um so clear deadlines are essential in these situations um also as i said you want sort of more skin in the game from the borrower as a show of good faith um if they really don't have cash or if you're not satisfied with what cash they are able to provide there are other ways to get additional leverage for yourself. You might look for a pledge of equity. Um, if you're a real estate lender who just has a mortgage on the property, depending on the jurisdiction, mortgage foreclosures can take a long time, up to two years. Um, so you might want to get a pledge of equity, which is foreclosable through the Uniform Commercial Code, which is a much faster process. Um, that gives you a lot more leverage because now the borrower knows um, they can't just play the clock against you and figure that you're going to work with them because you're not going to want to be in a foreclosure for two years. If you can foreclose in 30 or 45 days or even less um, under the UCC, that obviously becomes a, a much uh, stronger hammer for you. Um, other means of getting leverage that you might think about in this situation are additional guarantees. You know, somebody who's got his or her personal assets um, on the line um, is going to pay more attention uh, to a loan amendment than somebody who isn't really risking, you know, anything other than some perhaps reputational damage if they walk away from their special purpose entity. Um, but if their personal assets are on the line, as Bob was just mentioning with a, with a guarantee, um, that tends to focus the mind and again sort of helps you verify that they are really, they really are going to do this and really are going to pay attention. Um, default rate interest, as I mentioned earlier on, if you can, if you are able to determine that you can relate back to earlier defaults and present the borrower with a, a big number um, of default rate interest that they would owe if they don't go through with what they've promised to do in the modification or amendment, and especially if you can draft your modification or amendment such that unpaid default rate interest from earlier will snap back into place. Um, that again tends to focus the borrower on really complying with what they've said that they would do. Um, again, especially if you can get that default rate interest guaranteed by the guarantor, you know, now they're looking at a, a big number that could potentially be payable out of their personal assets if they um, don't comply with the workout and let things kind of go off rails again. Um, and then lastly, just reporting and visibility. Um, you know, again, borrowers tend to kind of like to sign documents and then um, keep, then sort of go back to go back to go back to business um, and not keep the lender in the loop. Um, in this situation, the lender wants to know with regularity what's going on. So maybe your initial loan only had quarterly reporting. Um, you may want in your amendment to move to a monthly reporting. Um, just so that you can really see if the property's performance matches what the borrower was telling you, or the, especially if 
You were counting on um, projected improvements to see whether those improvements are actually happening. And also to keep an eye on what's happening with the cash at the property. Um, presumably, you're, it's flowing through a cash management system in this situation, but not necessarily. Um, and you know, we've had a lot of lender clients who, once things start to go wrong, look under the hood and discover that the cash flow had not been flowing the way that the document said it was supposed to be flowing. Um, and it takes a lot of uh, effort to start getting cash to flow where it's supposed to flow and to track down what happened to the cash that wasn't flowing through the system like it was supposed to. So again, reporting and visibility and just making sure that you can verify what's been going on and what the borrower has projected will happen is, is key to these situations.